2: Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Kramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street.
0: Good Friday morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber with Morgan Brennan and Mike Santoli. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange. Carl and Jim both have this morning off. Let's give you a look at futures, of course, as we get ready to wrap up the trading week. Been a good week at least if you are long stocks. The August jobs report reflecting worries about the Delta variant outbreak. Nonfarm payrolls were up 235,000 last month. That was well below street estimates of some 720,000 jobs being added. The unemployment rate was in line with expectations. It fell to 5.2 percent. Average hourly earnings up 4.3 percent. That is year over year. You can take a look at the 10-year and Morgan, uh, leisure hospitality, uh, it accounts for what is really a large chunk of this miss. There was no job gains uh, whatsoever versus 415,000 in July. Let's call it about 397,000 in June. We know there seemed to be a lot of help wanted ads out there in that area, but the Delta variant certainly may have also cut back in just general sort of job growth as well. Um, and that was a lot of the miss.
1: Which is notable, given the fact that so much of this data was collected in really the first half of the month as well, before Delta truly kind of picked up the pace, uh, at least from a headline perspective, and just in terms of the climb we saw in cases as the month continued to unfold. Plus, you had the hurricane impacts, uh, other weather impacts towards the end of the month, too. So it wasn't just leisure and hospitality. It was also retail declining by 29,000, food and beverage down by 23,000. And actually, uh, kind of interestingly, you saw a decline. While you saw an increase in private education jobs, you did see decreases in government education jobs on both the state and local level. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out in the next job reports and and kind of speaks to the seasonality we see uh, in general coming into the fall season.
2: Yeah, actually, August is always kind of a noisy one with the seasonal adjustments. The markets, too, I think it's worth noting leading up to the number were kind of tacking in the direction of maybe we have a softness relative to the expectations in terms of the jobs number, maybe explains a relatively modest reaction afterward uh, in the markets. You did have about 130,000 positive net revisions to prior months. So if you yes. add that to the number uh, that we got in August, it gets you up toward 400,000. And a lot of the miss was maybe public sector. So it seems as if people are saying this is a definite miss. Um, but given the fact that you did also have this other peak in, in, a, in a covid surge potentially uh, and the fact that it does seem as if it's the most impacted parts of the economy that that were responsible for the miss, almost like it doesn't necessarily change that much about what the Fed's going to do. Uh, but it, it's, it shows you that, you know, the fact that the Nasdaq's been leading the way for a while, the fact that the cyclical stocks have been, been hurting and bond haven't been able to get much of a move on leading into today was, it shows you that this didn't necessarily, uh, come as a, a total shock because we were sort of clenching up for, for some possible weakness. Yeah.
0: Meaning doesn't mean much for the stock market. at well, all.
2: Well, I don't know. It, it could mean much if it's certainly, if it's more than one month phenomenon, yeah. um, and if we get to a position where September seems weak and the Fed is going to start to more explicitly signal that it's cutting back on, uh, on its bond purchases, maybe that matters. Uh, you know, I think that there's now a consensus building around the fact that the $120 billion a month of bond buying certainly isn't doing anything to help directly what is ailing the labor comeback, which is a supply issue. Mm-hmm. It's people needing to come back to work. It's not necessarily demand for it. So, you know, I, I think that's maybe why the market is, is OK for now. And, and we'll see if it continues as a trend.
1: And to that point, I mean, you do have a labor force participation rate that is stubbornly stuck at 61.7 percent. And also, I think the other thing to really key in, and in on is the fact that you continue to have these pretty ferocious wage gains. Uh, You know, we've had the debate for many months about inflation, transitory, not transitory, what that means for the Fed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And certainly we've heard, you know, and we continue to hear on a daily basis from corporate America um, about the impact of higher costs and price pressures and supply chain issues and everything else um, and what that means in terms of price increases to consumers. But when you see average hourly earnings up 0.6% month over month, much higher than expectations, 4.3 percent year over year. I mean, that is not that those are not cost increases for companies that are necessarily transitory. And I mean, Walmart just yesterday saying they're going to raise wages for their uh, U.S. employees, too.
2: Yep. Well, let's talk a little more about uh, all the numbers and the market's response uh, to them right now with uh, Diane Swank. She's chief economist at Grant Thornton and David Kelly, chief global strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Good morning to you both. Uh, Diane, you know, you've you've heard our discussion here. Your first reaction, there's no getting around the fact that it's a disappointing number, but I wonder how you would put it into context of the overall uh, economic trend that we're seeing.
3: Well, unfortunately, we're seeing a huge deceleration globally as well. We've seen really weak numbers come out of China recently. The Delta variant is hitting economies that escaped other waves. And I think that's very important to take into context. That hurts the supply chain disruptions that we've seen erupt out there, but it also hurts demand. And looking at what's happening and where we saw the Delta variant hit the employment report, that's demand related. We saw a blow, as you already mentioned, in leisure and hospitality, food services. We know that from the credit card data, that spending stalled out and started to come down a bit as the wave got worse in the worst hit areas. Mobility actually pulled back during August in those hard Areas. We also saw the pullback in retail, as you noted. And I think an important issue has been the irony of what happens to health care when we get overwhelmed at hospitals. Health care employment actually fell. And that's partly because we can't find enough people to work, but also we canceled electri- elective surgeries again during the month in many of these hot spots as we went into this employment report. We also heard reports of people literally walking off their shift mid-shift because of their frustration and how overwhelmed they are with what's happening in their hospitals in response to death. And all this leads into the disruptions that we're going to see from Hurricane Ida, which hit on the 16th anniversary of Katrina. We know from that it suppressed employment for two months. So you've now got probably three months of really weak employment data going forward.
2: Uh, David, if that is the setup here, um, it seems as if it it must be as simple as just tracking the pace of the Delta uh, surge. Uh, seeing exactly whether cases come down and just looking at the real time, you know, consumer data. Is, is that really all the, that we in the Fed ought to be watching at this point?
4: No, I don't think so. I think, I think we have to ask some real questions about what is full employment today, because this is a different economy from the economy we had at the end of the last long expansion. Then we could get the unemployment rate down to three and a half percent without explosive wage gains. Uh, now, now over the last two years, uh, if you look at the wages of production non-supervisory workers, they are up 9.9% over a two-year period. That is the strongest we've seen in 40 years. And what it says is that for various reasons, there just isn't labor supply in America right now. We've got 10.1 million job openings. Half the small businesses in America have jobs they can't fill. So this is really a labor supply constraint. It's a supply-constrained economy. And I think we do need, I do think the Delta variant is going to have an impact, a significant impact in September, more so actually than in the August report, because I think it, it sort of gathered pace over the course of the month. Um, but I think the, this really is a supply issue. We need to think about immigration. We need to think about how do we deploy vaccines to get people back to work. Um, but I think it's, it would be a mistake to see this as a lack of demand. This is really a lack of labor supply.
1: It's such a key point, Diane, especially given the fact that, I mean, the NFIB just earlier this week noting that half of small U.S. businesses have unfilled job openings. I mean, the demand is there. Uh, Does the supply side become a bigger part of the equation? Does this change? And I guess thus the expectations become more spring loaded for the September jobs report. When you see some of those enhanced unemployment benefits starting to roll off in the states where that hasn't already happened this month, you have the eviction moratorium uh, basically being lifted for better or worse. And of course, the reopening of schools and and kids going back.
3: Well, that's a really good point. And one of the issues that we know is that we don't know. The preliminary data is that it's not a huge impact as a deterrent, the supplements, but we'll really find out in September. But the labor supply issue goes so much deeper. This is both a collision of supply and demand, but demand has slackened. I don't, that really has to be underscored. We are looking at GDP growth below 4% on the third quarter now. That is a major slowdown in momentum. That said, I think it's important to look at the supply side issues go so far beyond those supplements. We see child care issues, child care Hiring at childcare services actually fell again for the second consecutive month and we saw participation rate among some of those that are single mothers that are the most vulnerable to this still weak and they're the ones that are going to be not able to return until their kids can stay in school and the fact that many schools are going back into quarantine after they open that further mucks up this idea that we had that the labor supply would be there much more readily as we reopen schools and I think that's another issue. The other part that everyone forgets about is that we had 2 million excess retirees that don't want to go back to work at the moment. They could return to the labor force. We did see a big pop-up in participation by teens, but that's off of low levels. I mean, the, the kinds of movements we're seeing from teens is encouraging, and that could be a source of labor supply, but I absolutely agree with David that the immigration situation is a huge problem when you've got an aging labor force, people retiring and afraid to go back to picking up 15 to 20 hours a week after retiring after age 65 because of contagion and the hazards of working a frontline job.
0: Uh, David, I need you to kind of wrap it all up for our viewers and try and bring it, if you can, as well, to your view of sort of the stock market or global equity markets, you know, given this very disappointing number, the fact that we still seem to be anticipating a taper from the Fed, let's call it November, but perhaps not, and then what it means for what has been an ebullient overall equity market.
4: Yeah, I think this is a time when people need to look at the valuations of the things in their portfolio very carefully because I agree with Diane that while this, you know, the supply issues, I think, were predominant in, in early August, I think the demand issue is is building up here. Uh, there's, a, there's a lack of, you know, demand is going to slow down a bit. So you've got a slower growing economy. You probably still have higher interest rates because you've still got higher inflation. That's going to be challenging for the equity market. And so I think it's very important to buy things that are well-priced here, that don't have huge P.E. ratios, huge multiples, because that those things will be challenged in a global economy, which is growing more slowly with higher inflation interest rates.
2: All right. Well, at at least as a reflex move, it looks like those expensive Nasdaq stocks are getting a bid this morning. We'll see if that can continue. David and uh, Diane, thanks a lot for uh, walking us through it today. Thank you.
0: Coming up, we'll have a closer look at the future for Didi. There is uh, some reporting that Beijing is potentially going to try to take at least a significant stake or a vote voting control stake in the company. Unclear if that's true You can see what the stock is doing. Taking a look at futures as well, of course, as we get ready for an opening bell 18 minutes from now and see we're set up for, let's call it a slightly higher open. We're squawking the street coming right up.
5: Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create.
1: Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Shares of Didi rising in pre-market trading. A published report says Beijing city is considering taking a stake in the Chinese ride-hailing company and possibly bringing it under state control. Now, it is unclear what size stake Beijing would consider taking, and you can see the spike in the chart right after that report hit the wires. Uh, right now, Didi is higher by 4% pre-market. Um, but, David, it really does speak to the ongoing regulatory concerns, headlines, developments that are coming out of China right now, what it means for investors, including investors here in the U.S., as, by the way, U.S. regulators also take a much firmer stance towards Chinese companies that are listed here. Nonetheless, you see the K-Web, for example, that Chinese ETF is higher by 9% this week. So we have seen a little bit of a bounce in some of these names. Yeah,
0: today they look like they may be headed down as we take a look there, but you're right. It's been a very good week for many of the names that you're looking at on the screen. Uh, after, of course, what has been a significant downtrend given this just onslaught of regulations. As for this in particular, I mean, first of all, remember, Didi went public at 14, on, uh, filed for its IPO June 10th, June 30th at priced at 14, opened at what, 1665, and then the bottom fell out a couple of days later when we got the yeah, first kind of, of what have been a series of reports about. Then it was the Chinese Cyberspace Administration launching a security investigation. And there were questions as to whether Didi already was aware of this prior to going public. And perhaps the underwriters should have made everybody fully aware of it. I don't know what to make of this. I'll rely on, on uh, Eunice Yoon, uh, who says that, you know, she messaged some investors, heard rumors, nothing has been set. Uh, one said he thought it was unlikely because it would be a bad look for global markets uh, and that there are other ways to punish uh, DD. But again, that's kind of interesting that stocks up because it does yeah. seem more likely that if that were to happen, it wouldn't necessarily be seen as a positive.
2: No, you know, you wouldn't think so. I mean, I guess just generically, oh, somebody's going to come in and, uh, and potentially uh, put money into the company or, or acquire it. Uh, now, it's the K-Web is down 50 percent from its highs even after mm-hmm. this bounce. So we have to kind of put it into the frame of, look, we've seen a lot of damage. People have already been leaning extremely negatively toward China, especially given this, what's going on in the economy. But You can't get away from the fact that every single day it seems like there's some other announcement or signaling of we need to steer this economy and society back in the direction of the way the party wants it, as opposed to, you know, letting it be a little more of an uh, unfettered, uh, you know, raising capital and going out and doing your own thing if you're a private company.
0: Yeah. Uh, And listen, there are those who are making a very significant bet on the short side in general in terms of China. Yeah. I know a number of them. You know, George Soros put a piece out recently talking about what what he believes it was quite negative uh even worrying about macau or even the likes of apple if this continues to move in yeah. sort of a way that it seems to be drifting towards uh just unclear but um you know we have our china bulls out there but there are certainly those who believe hey this is not going to get any better anytime i mean the news soon.
2: with alibaba this week right it's going to yeah. have to kind of invest its own money for the public good for prosperity
1: something like 15, billion 15 and a half billion by
2: 2025 yeah. is sort of what they've generally committed to
0: so uh yeah interesting um All right. We're going to keep an eye, of course, on all of those shares as well. Coming up, though, President Biden is scheduled to speak about this morning's jobs report. That'll be at 10 a.m. We will bring you live coverage of his remarks. Let's give you another look at futures. We get started with trading here a little less than 12 minutes or so from now. Squawk in the street. We'll be right back.
6: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
2: Taking a look at the top performing S&P sectors so far this week, utilities and communication services are leading the way. Healthcare also up more than 5% and real estate. So it shows you a relatively defensive tone to the market, even leading into today's jobs number. Uh, Top five uh, right now, uh, technology rounding it out at up 4.8% going into today. Opening bell, just a minute away. Welcome back. We've got about six minutes so we
0: get started with uh, the final trading session of the week. Of course, we'll be uh, keying the markets, perhaps keying a bit on that uh, uh, employment number coming in well below what had been expected. Uh, banks have not had a great week no. uh, so far as well. We're going to certainly keep an eye on the financials, particularly in, light, I guess,
2: the 10-year uh, yield actually up a bit. Yeah. But, uh, uh, what's been behind it, if anything? I mean, there has been, yields have been under a lid uh, for, for all week. Now they're getting a little bit of release to the upside. And banks may be looking their way uh, toward perhaps trying to firm up here. I mean, at least it would be a bit of a tell to the market's expectations about what this all means for the, not just the pace of growth, the jobs number, but also uh, for yields. Uh, the banks have kind of held steady for really six, or, six months now. Uh, they've gone sideways, not really given up the big lead they built up in the first quarter. It's the same thing with retailers. It's the same thing with the small cap stocks. So we've been in this three-month holding pattern of we, we all expected this really fast reopening and a huge kind of boom time running hot economy. That's been doused by a lot of the reality of Delta. But it's not as if the market's given up on this idea that ultimately this is a lull and it's going to pick up again. So to me, that's what going into the Fed decision. Now, maybe this number today says nothing happens in the September meeting, except they say they're keep they're continuing to talk about the taper. It doesn't change anything by about Powell's expectation that by year end, they begin to end the bond buying program. If that's a prelude, you know, uh, to something where yields maybe get uh, a little bit of, uh, of upside, then maybe the banks have a different story to tell.
1: It's also worth noting that with the financials underperforming this week, it's not just banks that are adding to that drag within the sector. It's also the insurance companies as well, given the fact that we have had Hurricane Ida, Ida, and it has done damage not only in the Gulf, which is continuing to dig out from that, but also throughout the Northeast as well. And you're seeing not only PNC names under pressure, but also reinsurers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we've got time for me to squeeze in a little bit of uh, breaking news here, at Morgan, on something you and I have both been following for quite some time, which, of course, has been that battle for the rails. A key point this week. You are out, actually. You didn't get to I cover know. a lot of it. I know. Uh, when the STB said no. Uh, no to Canadian National in terms of using a voting trust. Such an important part, of course, of their overall offer and their ability to basically take the risk off the table for KSU shareholders. And so they've continued to be talking to KSU about what, if anything, they can possibly do to, uh, to uh, enhance their bid, to stay in the game, potentially to appeal that offering, as unlikely as that might be. But what I can tell you now is, and this is not a big surprise. Uh, that uh, Kansas City Southern's board is going to meet. Uh, I'm not sure if it's going to be later today or or early tomorrow. And they are going to um, deem the current bid from Canadian Pacific likely or possibly likely to lead to a superior proposal. Uh, That has the effect of allowing them to start to talk to CP which, of course, you'd want to do if you're the Kansas City Southern Board. Why? Well, the CP deal, although less in value, has the assurance potentially of being able to use a voting trust and therefore taking a lot of the risk, Mm -hmm. the antitrust risk, away, if not all of it, for uh, Kansas City Southern shareholders. And so it is expected, it was perhaps expected, that Kansas City Southern would want to actually be able to enter talks with CP at the same time that they continue the conversations with Canadian National about what event anything, can be done to potentially enhance that offer given the lack of a use of a voting trust there. So um, again, according to people familiar with the situation, we can expect, Morgan, that we're going to see the board of case you make that decision. Hence, talks will begin with CP, which had put, I believe, a September 12th deadline on their current offer. So they were sort of saying, hey, either get back to us and talk to us, or we're leaving the stage.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. And, and yes, I was out when we have got the STB uh, information Tuesday afternoon. I know you covered it pretty extensively on Wednesday, but very strongly worded around this as yes. well, which I think speaks not only to... Concerns, at least from this administration uh, and regulators, where rail consolidation are concerned, but also more broadly, something we've been talking about, which has been the scrutiny in general of consolidation across a number of industries. This actually isn't the only um, deal or potential deal that's on the table uh,
0: within freight rail. Actually, I just lost my microphone again. Wow! You yeah. really did. It's completely gone. Her microphone. You're like a magician right, with that microphone. <laughs> There it is. Uh, well, we'll keep an eye on, on shares of Canadian Pacific, of course, which actually did go down in part uh, while CN went up. Don't forget, of course, you got an activist investor there at CN. That's right. It's important to point out, Chris, on now. To be fair, they own more of CP than they do of CN. And, of course, by putting pressure on CN to drop their bid, they in, in, inevitably are encouraging CP's bid. And so believe, obviously, at, at, at TCI that there will, be, there will be a beneficiary if CP buys that railroad. Yeah. As, and they have more economics going on there than they do at the other side. And
1: there's this emerging thesis out there that perhaps Canadian National would be better off, hence that some of the activists, activists, uh, that we're seeing uh, take root. That CN would be better off without KSU. They could uh, focus more on things like precision scheduled railroading and bringing their operating ratio lower as well. So, potentially an opportunity there for investors as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, you hear the applause building here, of course, as you get ready to uh, start uh, the last trading day of the week. Uh, the opening bell here at the NSC, the Real Time Exchange, Green versus red goes on that right board. Here. here at the big board, online homebuyer offer pad. That's celebrating its listing. It was via SPAC. Market. I'm going to have more, by the way, on that SPAC uh, in a bit. And over at the NASDAQ Biopharma Company, Legend Biotech. All right, we want to get to some breaking news right now out of Apple. Uh, and for that, we're joined by uh, John Ford. John.
7: Hi, hey, uh, David. The uh, news from Apple this morning, sent just a few minutes ago, is regarding uh, those steps that Apple was taking uh, to combat child images of child sexual exploitation. They were going to scan user devices, including iPhones, including maps, uh, f- sorry, including Macs, for those images. They said they were going to do it in a way that did not actually look at all of the images on a user's phone, but nonetheless was going to be able to make matches to a database uh, using a, a hashed system. But Apple is hitting pause on that. The statement reads in part, last month we announced plans for features intended to help protect children from predators who use communication tools to recruit and exploit them and limit the spread of child sexual abuse material. Apple says we've decided to take additional time over the coming months to collect input and make improvements before releasing these critically important child safety features. So the indication from Apple, they still plan to do this, at least in this statement, but just not immediately. And when they say in the coming months, given that we normally get an announcement of new iPhones here in September, they begin to ship Shortly thereafter, perhaps new Macs or the hardware for the uh, holiday season, we probably shouldn't expect to see these features roll out until 2022. Uh, This happens as Apple has also just taken this step to uh, settle uh, with a clash action suit having to do with the App Store and make changes to the App Store given uh, pressure from the government in Japan. So uh, Apple reconsidering quite a few of its policies and procedures this week, guys.
0: All right. Uh, John, thank you for that news. John Fort uh, on uh, Apple. Uh, speaking of the stock, Mike, it has had a, a good, good week. Yes. Um, despite what would have seemed to have been headlines that would have perhaps uh, augured for a different reaction.
2: Yeah. Um, I have to say, the stock kind of acts in the absence of anything that's going to move uh, iPhone demand news uh, or anything like that. It's mostly about do people want to migrate money toward the two and a half trillion dollar behemoth that is a great steward of capital and is going to have durable profit margins. I think that's the way it's been acting for a while right now. It has been, you know, this kind of Nasdaq market for for several weeks right now to the point where really the only uh, major parts of the market that seemed like they got a little stretched was, was NASDAQ 100-type stocks and, of course, Apple, the biggest one of those. Um, but Netflix has had an incredible And Netflix, week. exactly. And so some of the stuff that's been sort of lagging, uh, like a Netflix, like even some, like we talked about yesterday, the ARC funds, uh, they've percolated again after, you know, six, seven, eight months in the wilderness. Um, so uh, it does seem as if the longer a bull market goes, nothing can get left behind for long. And I think Netflix is an interesting story there, because you've reset subscription growth expectations, I think, after last quarter's numbers. You've probably gotten through the period where basically everybody who's going to launch a streaming service that could be of any sort of threat or create more churn at Netflix has already done so. And we're sort of seeing what their run rates are. Netflix is now the giant and the incumbent. And they have this big release slate. We'll see if that gets it to 600 or not, or if it's just kind of a, you know, a little bit of a mean reversion trade higher to, to meet some of the other big NASDAQ names.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, all the major averages are lower today, albeit very, very small losses um, to really end the week. And, of course, we're hovering right near those record highs that we've been hitting almost day after day, it would seem, for the S&P and the NASDAQ uh, in recent sessions. But tech, to your point, well, now tech. Tech just went slightly negative uh, in terms of sectors in the S&P. Um, but Apple is one of those names that's hanging on to gains today. And, of course, Broadcom as well, which reported earnings after the bell last night, actually traded lower initially uh, on those results, but just, just, despite the fact that they were better uh, than the street was expecting. I, I know we do have a uh, quote here from the call as well from Hock Tan, uh, the CEO, talking about their... Um, discipline around supply. You can see it right there. We can show bigger numbers, but that means we will build up inventory in the wrong places and we will need every one of those wafers in this environment, not just this quarter or next quarter and the quarter after that to ensure that our strategic customers are able to get what they need to launch to to deploying programs. Um, Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: It's, it's interesting because it's directly addressing the, the big concern among investors, which is, uh, yeah, there's a shortage. Yeah. The supply disruptions. That means everybody's double ordering and it's not really reflecting organic demand. And we're just feeding into a future glut. By, you know, by by trying to meet all these. So uh, Broadcom trying to get ahead of that and saying, no, we're trying to be smart about it. We want to make sure that uh, that we're rationing our supply to those that are really going to be putting it into products that are selling.
1: We've been having so many conversations about not only the deployment of 5G, which is a multi-year story. And certainly Broadcom, um, you know, is keyed into that. But also the shift to hybrid work models as well, as it seems there is not a day that goes by that we don't get another, you know, post-pandemic game plan that is announced by a a company and and so even as there's this churn going on it would seem uh, in the market in terms of reversion to the mean and what growth rates are gonna look like for the tech companies that have benefited the most from stay at home work there's this bigger broader secular enterprise cloud and technology adoption in general story that is playing out in Broadcom is certainly keyed into that or, or exposed to that. And so are some of the other names that are moving big and also reported earnings this morning as well. Names like MongoDB, for example. You could make the case about DocuSign. Um, a number of names uh, that, that speak to, I think, this debate, Mike, about just how much growth is sort of left in left in the tank for uh, these enterprise-facing tech names.
2: DocuSign, you know, I think that they make the case, the analysts make the case, that of all these pandemic beneficiaries might be the one that is the least likely for people to go back to the old way of doing things, right? And I think the stock reflects that. I mean, it's, you see it's given back almost nothing since yeah. we've reopened uh, because people feel like there's no real net benefit to going back to signing papers uh, physically yeah. or, or <laughs> all the other, you know, services that DocuSign creates super expensive stock reflecting exactly those expectations, I think. Um, I
0: did want to come back to SPACs and, and sort of something I've been very focused on these last couple of weeks and specific to today, uh, ringing the opening bell, um, OfferPad. Uh, it is now uh, a publicly traded company, what we call a de spac You should take a look at the broader averages there. But what has uh, caught my eye of late, of course, is uh, the level of redemptions that we're getting at many of these SPACs. Remember, Shareholders can choose before a record date to get 10 bucks back if they do so. And so many of these stocks are trading right at around $10 and are believed, frankly, to then after the close of the deal go down, that many investors are saying, I'll just take my $10. It's another... A transparency question, though, because not all of these facts are actually telling us what their redemptions were or their redemption rates were. And you sort of have to try to back into it by simply figuring out what they say their post-cash, um, most post-merger cash post cash position is. In the case of Offerpad, it's $284 million. So then you go back and you look at the original press releases we did. And you see, well, they had expected to have $650 million in cash. That's a big difference. And that included $200 million from the pipe uh... and fifty million in a direct investment so assuming those both came in as planned at two fifty you only got thirty four million of what was originally going to be four hundred and three million in the trust account from the SPAC, meaning your redemption rate here we don't know they didn't tell us had to be very high all of this goes back to the idea that listen when they set these deals up and they decide on evaluation, they also make a decision on terms of how much cash they want to fund their business plan to reach the goals that they put out Uh in that long presentation we typically get on announcement. Well, in this case it was 615 million, now it's only 284 million. It was above the minimum cash requirement, but not much. And you just have to wonder, A, from a transparency and a disclosure, why aren't we getting these numbers right away? It would seem to me that they're material. And B, the larger question is to whether these companies can adequately uh, execute on their business plan with a lot less cash than they list, at least anticipated.
4: Which Sorry. brings us
1: back to IronNet. General Alexander was on yep. earlier this week. That, co- that stock began trading as a public company a week ago as well. We've, se- we've seen a number of this. I know you've been all over it. It's kind of like the next chapter of the SPAC discussion and concerns, risks, worries, potentially uh, for investors and, and folks that are following these deals. And um, perhaps it also speaks to the fact that many of the SPACs that have actually spec or the companies that have de and are now publicly traded have not performed well
0: no we can look at our index i think uh we our post uh, deal index and you can see that it's trading below par uh there it is um no that's not it it's that one thank uh yeah that's the one there it is okay um right isn't that it that's it yeah post back I have to look at my producer carry every time because I get <laughs> lost on this, but uh, that gives you a sense as yeah. to what 's going on and by the way, this is also frozen the pipe market because if you 're a pipe investor coming in at ten bucks uh, originally, you thought there'd be a pop, you thought you 'd be able to get out a la lucid, which obviously went well, and we saw what happened mm-hmm. the other day when when the uh, when they were able to start selling the pipe holders. but in this case, with all these things trading below ten bucks when they finally closed the deal. It's not an incentive for anybody to get involved in a pipe. And so you have that market drying up as well.
2: Of all the stuff that in the first quarter we were saying was showing a lot of froth and things got crazy, whether it was the archetype funds or, you know, EV stocks or cloud or all of those things, Tesla, they all had their little crack. And they've all come back except for SPACs as a group. And shorting SPACs, I think, is probably the biggest winning trade on the short leg of a lot of hedge funds this year. You talk about people just say a basket of them, you know, go short and and it's worked.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to take a break now. Still to come, a look at the state that uh, needs the most help when it comes to infrastructure. But first, let's give you a bond report, because it is that time. Take another look at how our are referring this morning. Of course, we did get that jobs report uh, at 8.30 a.m. Eastern. The reaction, well, you can see, up a bit on yields in the 10-year. We'll bring you President Biden's remarks, by the way, on that jobs report. That'll be at the top of the hour, 10 o'clock. Stay with us. A lot more Squawk in the Street coming right back.
5: Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Rick Santelli here live at the CME HQ. In about a half a minute, we're going to be seeing the ultimate number, the August final for market services, PMI and composite PMI. We just came off of what was mostly a weak jobs report outside of several areas. and The one I focused on, up six-tenths of 1% for average hourly earnings on a month-over-month basis. That data series was started in April of 2006. That very first month was up six-tenths. Since then, there has been no reads that high until we reached COVID, pre-COVID. So today's number really historically is significant, and it may feed into that wage inflation spiral, which has pushed yields up from their initial response of moving lower. The number's hitting the wires at 55.1. That's the services PMI. So we take 55.2, the mid-month read, and replace it with the read of one-tenth less. And when it comes to the composite, 55.4 is exactly the same as mid-month read at 55.4. And I guess if we're going to talk about these, they're well off their post-COVID highs, but still above 50 expresses expansion versus contraction. Squawk on the Street will return after these messages.
0: Let's go over to Bob Pisani now. He's got more on the action today. Bob.
8: Yeah, unfortunately, this jobs report doesn't help the stock market. What I hear from the traders is it's playing into the stagflation argument. So we have somewhat higher wage Numbers, which is good for workers and weaker job growth. That's the stagflation story. So take a look at the major indices. You can see kind of gold likes this, obviously up a little bit. The dollar doesn't particularly. Dollar's been trending down for the last few weeks, and it's kind of blah to a negative, a slight negative for for stocks overall. You see the S and P weak, but not terribly weak. If you look at the major sectors here, obviously banks up a little bit, rates up a, a little bit more. Uh, little. Uh, Higher rates definitely will help the banks a bit. Uh, But everything else, tech's a mild positive because we're waiting for COVID to pass. That's what the market's doing. And that would be a beneficiary. Tech would be a beneficiary for any continuation of concerns around Covid, But everything else, you know, that's cyclical, uh, like consumer discretionary. Some of the housing stocks are weak today. Energy generally not great news for that cyclical part of the economy. Meantime, uh, I think the concern here at this point is you get inflation moving and basically jobs don't move and the Fed doesn't move. Then you have a concern about the Fed moving suddenly. So this stagflation story uh, has got a lot of lo- a little more traction as a result of the numbers today. Meantime, while we're waiting for COVID to pass, everybody, uh, we're going to have a very busy fall IPO season. In fact, this may be the all-time record one here. We're expecting 90 to 110 IPOs uh, in the next few months. This is according to a new report from Renaissance Capital. Uh, we're going to have close to 400, 375 deals, raising $125 billion if all goes As estimated, this would be the largest capital raise ever, that $125 billion. It would be the busiest by deal count, $375 since the 2000 internet bubble. So we could set some records for IPOs and a lot of well known consumer names. I know you get a little crazed when we talk about all these uh, tech uh, names that nobody knows about, but you know Warby Parker, and this is going to be a direct listing, by the way, but you know about Fresh Market. Uh, you know, authentic brands, that's a big uh, uh, brand licensor for Nautica and Eddie Bauer. You know about All Birds, sustainable footwear. These are consumer names. And there's other big candidates uh, that are out there that are well-known consumer names that are not formally announced but are believed to be likely. Instacart, the big grocery uh, delivery company. Chobani, the Greek yogurt. Sweetgreen, you know, the the salad restaurant company. Uh, Flipkart, they're the biggest uh, online retailer in India. That's a Walmart spin out over there. And you all know Impossible Foods, plant-based meat products. These are likely not Absolutely. But potential candidates for the fall. And then they've got others that are not even consumer names uh, out there. Toast, a big digital payment processor is going to be coming, uh, possibly Stripe, another mobile payment uh, processor, Republic Airways, Rivian Automotive, some electric vehicle companies that are out there. Uh, Reddit's also uh, reportedly uh, interested in they're hiring some bankers right now, the online message board, you know, all these companies. So it's going to be an exciting fall. We'll keep an eye on that. I'll tell you what everybody's been complaining about. The IPO aftermarket has not been great. Now, that white line there, that's the Renaissance Capital IPO. This is an aftermarket index. Aftermarket means the day after they go public. What happens to these companies? Because that's when these, uh, the CTF buys in. There's the S&P 500, the orange line. You see it's underperformed for most of the year. Moved down in February on higher rates that, that hurt many of these younger tech companies. But also, high prices essentially uh, caused these companies to move to the downside uh, in the middle of the year. And, Michael, that's been a major problem. So the hope right now in July and August, the pricings were lower than in the earlier part of the year. And as you can see, that IPO ETF has picked up a little bit. Hopefully, prices will be more appealing to the buyers in the fall. Mike, back to you.
2: Of a balanced market, Bob, thank you very much. A massive overhaul of the nation's infrastructure could be in jeopardy again. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin wants a pause on the three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation plan, which needs every Democratic vote to pass. But Senate Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders says there will be no consideration of a separate bipartisan bill, which includes funding for roads and bridges, without the broader reconciliation bill. Caught in the middle, the state with the worst infrastructure in the nation, which is where our Scott Cohn is uh, coming to us from this morning. Hi, Scott.
9: Hi, Mike. And you know it, the state with the worst infrastructure is Maine, which finishes dead last in that category of our America's top states for business study this year, 48th overall, with the worst power grid in America and among the worst roads and bridges. How bad? Nearly 13% of Maine's bridges are in poor condition, according to federal data, and about half of them are 50 years old or older or more. Uh, Your average commute to work in Maine is roughly the same as the commute in Michigan, which is a state with nearly ten times the population. Maine's governor says there's years and years of deferred maintenance, but she wants to go beyond just patching the roads.
3: It's a public safety measure, uh, not just a measure of allowing cars and trucks to to, uh, engage in commerce effectively. You know, in mud season, we have to close a lot of the roads because they're not—they can't sustain truck traffic, construction traffic, uh, and logging trucks. We have to close road, many roads in Maine to logging trucks and, and commercial vehicles. I'd like to get beyond that.
9: Yes, Maine has a mud season. That's one of the reasons that infrastructure maintenance is such a challenge in this rugged state, and why they're practically drooling over the potential funding. In the infrastructure bill, we're talking $1.3 billion in highway money, another nearly a quarter billion dollars for bridges. That's according to the latest figures from the White House, plus millions more in grants that the states uh, can compete for. Maine's Department of Transportation says this state is running at about a $200 million a year shortfall in terms of what they need to do and what they can afford to do. That money will help. There's also, of course, money in there for the power grid and also for broadband. That's a big need in this state. If you're thinking of leaving your job and moving to the woods in Maine to work remotely, uh, you've got a rude awakening coming because broadband is poor here. They hope to improve that as well. Morgan?
1: Something we're all going to be watching very closely as... uh We await an infrastructure package to actually make its way through Congress and become a law. Scott Cohn, thanks. And by the way, try the oysters up there. They're really good. They don't get enough attention. (laughs) All right. Um, shifting gears here, I want to take a look at a name. We were talking about SPACs earlier. This is one of those companies that kind of helped popularize SPACs a number yes. of years ago now, Virgin Galactic. Those shares are under pressure right now, down about 35 almost 4%. This coming on the heels of an FAA investigation due to a flight deviation for the last space flight test, the one that founder Sir Richard Branson was on board back in July. Um, some issues around the path, the flight path, for about a minute 41. One seconds that that spaceship took on that test flight. The FAA coming out with a statement yesterday that includes saying that Virgin Galactic may not return the Spaceship 2 vehicle to flight until the FAA approves the final mishap investigation report and determines the issues related to the mishap do not affect public safety. This is in focus for investors in large part because virgin is looking to do its next flight a revenue generating flight for the italian air force yesterday they released a press release saying that they were hoping to do that with some of those details and they're hoping to do that as soon as later this month or early october so the spaceship is grounded at least until the the faa has what was the mishap there were heavy winds at high altitudes and the spaceship drop down slightly below. It's designated for about a minute, 41 seconds. It's it's flight path that was designated by the FAA. So uh, for its part, Galactic says that they're working closely with the FAA to support a thorough review and timely resolution of this issue that no one's safety was at risk. Nonetheless, shares are under pressure.
0: Right. Although one of the more, as you said, one of the more successful SPAC deals, obviously long past this these backing at this point.
4: You've been listening to the
2: opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street.